Mercy, be thou our vision this morning. You are our Lord, the Lord of life, and we ask that you would do that through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It was April the 12th, 1945, and Adolf Hitler was in his air raid shelter in Berlin, Germany, when he received a call. He answered the phone, and it was Joseph Goebbels, his minister of propaganda. And Goebbels was elated, really excited. Why? Because the president of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, had died. At this point, Germany's days were numbered and the allies were pressing from the west and the russians were were pressing from the east in a short time berlin was going to fall but all of that was inconsequential to goebbels the moment as he told hitler it is written in the stars the last half of april will be the turning point for us he was referring to two earlier astrological predictions that had forecast a decisive victory in the second half of April for Germany. And he believed that the first sign of that was the death of the President of the United States. Well, it didn't turn out like that. Eighteen days later, Hitler and his new wife committed suicide, recognizing that the end was, was inevitable. Goebbels and his wife, the very next day, May the 1st, poisoned their six children and then committed suicide themselves. But here's the point. What Goebbels did in, in turning to astrology during a time of great crisis isn't unusual. Facing turmoil, facing stress and trials, people without God, without hope, and without God in this world will often turn in their desperation to anything that they think could provide them some kind of security, some kind of relief, some kind of direction, some kind of hope, as long as those things don't intrude on their personal autonomy. It's always a worship issue, isn't it? And that's Saul, in a nutshell, in chapter 28. On the night before the king would die because of his apostasy. Saul finds himself in a hopeless situation without hope and without God in this world. To use Ephesians 2 verse 12 language. Indeed, we see the hopeless situation at the very beginning of verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now to drive home the hopelessness of this situation, we are given three aspects of this hopelessness. The first we see at the very beginning here, Samuel's death. Uh, this is the second mention of Samuel's death. Um, we saw that he died in, actually, chapter 25. But this shows that now Saul is completely deprived of prophetic guidance. Which, to be perfectly frank, he had earlier disregarded, hadn't he? When things were going well. When things were working out for him, when, when he was seeing victories, when he was on the mountain, he was dismissive of the Word of God. He didn't sense his need for it. 
He had become very strong, if you will. But not initially. Actually, when he had first become king, as we saw, he was a relatively good king. Indeed, the first or the second part of verse 3 here reminds us that at one time Saul seemed to respect the law of God, the prophetic word. Notice with me in the second part of verse 3. It looks back at another time. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That was another time. Now, mediums and necromancers were, were thought to have the power to communicate with the spirits of the dead. But the law of Moses, in fact, it's the only known religious text. Our text, our Bible, is the only known religious text to forbid such evil. One of many examples, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughters as an offering, child sacrifice. We'll look at that tonight in, in Jeremiah chapter 7. It became a real problem in Israel. Or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. And so Saul ridding the land of the mediums and the necromancers was commendable. But that was yesterday's obedience. And yesterday's obedience is not imputed on to today. And today, because of his apostasy... And that brings us to the second aspect of this hopeless situation. Israel is under the oppression of the Philistines. Again, as we saw a long time ago in our study, the Philistines kind of are a thermometer. When Israel is obedient to God, pleasing God, the Philistines are under their thumb. When they're not... The Philistines are dominating the Israelites. Well, notice in verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now, I want you to remember back in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, what we looked at last week. In verses 1 and 2, Achish, the king of the Philistines, had recruited David to be a part of the Philistine army. Things are bleak in every way at this point. Sin produces chaos. I don't think we take that truth seriously enough. Sin produces chaos. It never bears good fruit. And it's also producing all kinds of collateral damage. But even with this, it wasn't the biggest reason for the hopeless situation. The third reason was the most critical of all. Notice in verse 6. And so at this point, Samuel die, has died. The Philistines are coming against the Israelites. But the biggest problem we see in 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. 1 Chronicles 10 Verses 13 and 14 indicates that the reason God had gone silent with Saul was because of this perennial pattern 
this breach of faith. Saul is a classic apostate. William Blakey, in some haunting and sobering and yet poetic words, says this, Saul was incapable of that exercise of soul which would have saved him. The most terrible effect of cherished sin. He says this is the terrible effect of cherished sin, sin that you will refuse to repent of. It dries up the fountains of contrition. And they will not flow. It stiffens the knees. And they will not bend. The knees can no longer bend to the lordship of God. That's what cherished sin does. It paralyzes the voice and, and it will not cry. You don't even have the capacity to cry out to God at that point. It blinds the eyes and they see not the Savior. That's what cherished sin does. And that's where Saul is. Later, Isaiah would warn in a very haunting warning for me in verse 6 of chapter 55 of Isaiah, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That seems to indicate that there might come a day when he can't be found. There might come a day in your persistent sin when he is no longer near to be drawn to. Of course, the silence wasn't new with Saul. We saw it all the way back in chapter 14, verse 37. But like many in history, there had come a day when that silence was too much to endure. And desperate times reveal more than anything else what a person is truly trusting in. Your desperate times reveal more than anything else what you're truly trusting in. Because when times are great, you can deceive yourself into thinking you're trusting in the Lord when actually you're just trusting in your prosperity. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, Saul's hopeless reaction. This hopeless circumstances, and now because of his apostasy, you see this hopeless Reaction, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out from me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So earlier Saul had thrown out the mediums and, and the necromancers, but now... In his desperation, he wanted one. How devastating it is when leaders return to the same sins that they have publicly renounced. That they've preached against. Later, Isaiah again would say to Israel in chapter 8 verse 19... When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. Here again, he is speaking to people who are about to be sent into exile because they never learned. Should not a people inquire of their God? Maybe he's thinking about Saul. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Saul knew better, but Saul is desperate, and in his desperation, he turned to the very source that he knew was an abomination. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went 
he and the two men with him, why would he disguise himself? The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. He knows this is wrong. And when you have to do anything in a corner, that's a telltale sign that you're not on the right course. And they came to the woman by night. The narrator is giving you a theological statement by that language. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. The night is a metaphor. Yes, it happened at night. But that night is a metaphor of the soul, this moment. Saul's soul. And he said, divine for me by a spirit. And bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely... You know what Saul has done, or the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. She does not recognize Saul at this point, but she knows that she's there and shouldn't be there because he has cast out the, the mediums. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. Think of how hopeless this is. Saul recognizes his need for truth from God. And yet he is too hardened to come to the Lord himself. Saul isn't concerned with repentance. He isn't concerned with his relationship with God. He's concerned with rescue. And we see this today with people who, if you were to observe their lives, there is no communion with God. They may go to church every Sunday, but... In the day-to-day, week-to-week, there is no communion with God. They have closed Bibles, and there's about ten Bibles on their shelf. Closed. They can tell you about every television show and every Netflix show, but they are virtually ignorant of the Word of God. But then crises hit, and what do they do? They appeal to Christians to pray for them. It's no different than than Saul here. Notice in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, now we're going to come to this, the elephant in the room here, in just a moment. But I first of all want to address what the narrator is primarily concerned about. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. We're not told how she came to realize he was Saul. Maybe Samuel spoke his name as he, as he arose. We don't know. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He doesn't see a God. He sees a glorified saint. I think this is just a picture of glory here. We'll talk about that in a moment. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground, and paid homage. And that brings us to a hopeless prophetic word from this spirit that has been called up. Verses 15 to 20. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Saul, like many, wanted guidance, but didn't want God. He wanted guidance, but not out of the fear and the love of God, but out of a desire for self-preservation and professional success. He wanted to use God, but he had no, no interest in worshiping him. And here, you could mark this in your Bible, are some of the saddest most terrifying words in all the scripture. God has turned from me and he answers me no more. Is there anything more fearful than that in the scriptures? God has turned from me. That is eschatological judgment intruding into the present. That is hell intruding into the present. He answers me no more. Saul faced the most monumental crisis of his life. And God has nothing to say to him. Now, even true believers can sometimes find themselves in a, in a state, a place, like what the Puritans used to call God's dreadful withdrawal. Have you ever sensed that? God's dreadful withdrawal. When God seems to go dark, to use intelligence language, and there's apparent indifference with him kind of like what you see the disciples in the boat in the midst of a hurricane and jesus is asleep in the boat and they say don't you care you're asleep and sometimes we feel that way psalm 44 wake up oh god the psalmist from his perspective feels that god is asleep in the midst of his circumstances of course that state that we feel doesn't describe God's own mental state towards us as believers. Scripture affirms that God will not forget his people. Psalm 9 verse 12, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Indeed, the abandonment we feel is only apparent. As believers but nonetheless in the providence of God he will allow his saints saints who are above reproach saints who are not cherishing sin in their lives to go through these seasons where it seems that God is silent and asleep one example of many Psalm 13, David writes, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt that way? Isn't that a gift to have a psalm you can pray when you feel that way? But note the difference between David, a believer, and Saul, an apostate. David doesn't turn to other sources for security and relief and hope as he senses God has gone silent. He doesn't turn to mediums or necromancers. He remains fixed on God. Psalm 13:3, two verses later, after asking him, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. 
Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David persists with God in the midst of the silence because he knows that God has dealt bountifully with him in the past and that he is going to sing once again. The point. True believers who are experiencing these seasons of what the Puritans call God's dreadful withdrawal come to recognize that the clearest sign that God hasn't turned from them is that even in his apparent absence, they keep turning to him. The only explanation of that is the grace of God. The only explanation for that is the presence of God. That was David. In fact, the, the believer faced with God's absence is more concerned with that than anything else. That's not Saul's biggest concern. Saul is more concerned with his circumstances, and now God has abandoned him, and he doesn't know what to do. For those who have a pattern of spurning God's word, of dismissing and, and being disregarding of God's presence. This is a scary, scary passage because the text seems to indicate that you could come to a place where there's no place for repentance. Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, spoke of a man who, who consistently mocked Spurgeon Spurgeon's entire ministry mocked the words he said, the truths that he preached. But yet on this man's deathbed in desperation, he called for Spurgeon. And here's what he said, Spurgeon. This man, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he had superstitiously sent for him. Too late. He sighed for the minister of reconciliation and sought to enter in at the closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left for him for repentance. He had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted him. What is worse than to know that you need to repent and you can't? Hebrews 12, 17 Esau found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a scary verse. He knew he needed to repent, and he couldn't repent. He even sought it with tears. And, and Samuel, for his part, his part, responds to Saul... And he says that the Lord is simply carrying out what he, Samuel, had previously rightly prophesied. Notice in verse 16, and Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. That's back in chapter 15. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. I'm not saying that they're going to be in heaven, they're going to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. 
think one would be with him in that sense, Jonathan. But that's a, in this particular case, I do not think that Saul was a believer. Because a repentance that won't change you in life won't save you at death. A repentance that won't change you in life will not save you at death. Of course, we know that it's God who saves, but repentance and faith are the instruments by which we lay hold his redeeming work in his son Jesus. And the words here, you did not obey the Lord, is a reference back to chapter 15 when, when Saul refused to commit the utter ban on the Amalekites. He, he took spoils of the war. And interestingly, at that time, in verse 23, Samuel had made this strange comment. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Strange comment. At the time, it seemed strange to compare what Saul had done in, in holding back spoils of the war and witchcraft. But we saw then that what Samuel was saying to, to Saul was that witchcraft-level rebellion is seen in partial obedience. It has the same status before God as witchcraft. Partial obedience. What is partial obedience? I'm going to obey you over here, but I'm sequestering this area of my life for me. And he says it's like the sin of divination, witchcraft. Which has come full bloom for Saul because sin never remains stagnant. It escalates and it escalates. And we, we tend to ignore this truth because we cherish our sequestered pockets of compromise. We know we're a slanderer. We know we're a gossip. But we don't cheat on our spouses. This is just one area that I'm going to hold on to. God understands I'm not perfect. I'm only human. Little pockets of compromise. But understand this. Every act of willful sin, high-handed sin separates us from the security of knowing for sure that we are in God's will. That's what it does. It's one of the effects of sin. It separates us from the security of knowing for sure that we are in God's will. And so we, re we pursue security replacements to fill that void. We've lost this security of knowing we're in God's will, and we are our hearts are hardwired for security, so if we can't find it with him, we're going to go looking for security elsewhere. In other words, in the perceived absence of the Lord, because of our sin, a God replacement emerges. That's what we see here, and we see it every day. But I've waited to address the elephant in the room. And the reason I waited is because I don't think that's the writer's biggest concern for us to try to figure this out. If it was, he would have explained it. But I do think we can come to terms with what's going on here to a certain degree. Was the spirit really Samuel? And can a medium, a necromancer, really command the spirit of a human being who has died? Much less a great prophet like Samuel. A common view in the early church and, interestingly, common at the time of the Reformation was that this woman actually summoned Satan to appear in the guise of Samuel. It's actually Satan. It's not Samuel. And so some of the reformers agreed with that and others suspected that it was merely a delusion. The woman and Saul were, were deluded. 
But I don't agree with either one of those positions. Not that we can fully come to terms with this, but a straightforward reading of the text would indicate to me that the narrator here believes that she actually saw Samuel. Notice in verse 14, and Saul knew that it was Samuel. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, and Samuel said, why did you ask me? Verse 20, Saul was filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. So a straightforward reading of the text would, would lead me to believe that this writer, the narrator here, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually believes this is Samuel. Second, this spirit refers to earlier conversations that he had had with Saul. He takes him all the way back to chapter 15 and, and he, he rehearses the warnings that he had given Saul then. Third, he uses the covenant name for the Lord, Yahweh, seven times. I don't see a demonic spirit doing that. Seven times you see the name Lord used. And then he adds that true prophecy that Samuel had given Saul in his lifetime that he was going to perish. And so it's difficult for me to think that the writer believed that this was just one big deception. Having said all that, even though I believe mediums and necromancers can conjure up evil spirits, and that's why it's forbidden, not because it's not effective. It's because it's pagan and evil and wicked. Even though I believe that necromancers and, and, and mediums can conjure up demonic spirits, it is superstitious to believe that mediums have access to the souls of human beings who have died. And that's why I think the woman was surprised. I mean, she is absolutely shocked when she saw this man, Samuel. So my view is that Samuel came not at the command of the medium, but at the unexpected command of God. And there's a later event that I think would support that. Moses and Elijah on a Mount of Transfiguration. Summoned there not by a medium, but by God. In Matthew chapter 17. I believe that God commanded Samuel to reinforce the judgment he was bringing on Saul. One of the greatest gifts a person on their deathbed can have is blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And instead of biblical assurance, the night before Saul dies, he is being reminded by Samuel, judgment is coming on you. And hence, notice verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. He knows he's not just going to die. He knows that he is going to face eternal judgment. Samuel did not, or Saul did not lack knowledge. He knew his Bible. You can know the Bible and not bow the knee to the king of the Bible. And there was no strength in him. He had eaten nothing all day and all night. 
Maybe the reason he had not eaten all day and all night is he was maintaining that foolish practice that we saw earlier that he would fast during times of battle. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 28. But that, along with the stress of the entire situation, he had marched some six miles incognito to come see this witch. And that's likely why he is at this place of just complete exhaustion. And the woman, no doubt, still fearing that Saul could do something to her because of the earlier stance he had taken on the mediums, sought to address it. And that brings us to the last passage, the last part of this passage, a passage filled with hopelessness. In verses 21 to 25, we see a hopeless last supper. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. She's not devoted to him. She's devoted to herself. She doesn't want him to kill her. I have taken my life in my hands and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. Maybe he didn't want to break the fast. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it. It was a rare meal in that day. This was a meal fit for a king. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose, notice, and went away that night. Maybe Saul was able for the moment to forget the judgment that awaited him. This nice meal. Just like unbelievers who seek distractions and diversions to cover up their real fear of what they know is coming to them. Death and judgment. And the, the witch, for her part, all she could do was offer him food that perishes, to use Jesus' language, but not food that endures to eternal life. She was the original member of the social gospel movement. Meeting material needs, but no gospel. But the irony of the meal is threefold. First of all, his royal career, Saul's royal career began with a meal, if you'll remember, in chapter 9, prepared by the great prophet Samuel. And after that meal, he was ushered onto the throne. His life now, his last meal, is prepared by a witch, which will usher him into death and judgment. But the second thing I think ironic about the language here, this is a meal of unleavened bread, which, like the Passover meal, the Passover meal of unleavened bread took place at night. The Passover, though, was no benefit for Saul here. It was still preparation for an exodus. The next day, Saul, the firstborn king, would die. He would perish. The angel of death would visit Saul. But this would enable David, the true Israel, to come out of Egypt, the land of the Philistines. I think the third irony here is this scene also points us forward to another Last Supper. This is Saul's Last Supper. And another person 
with great privilege like Saul would eat his last supper. His name was Judas. But he wasn't a king, but he was a disciple. One of the original 12. Great privilege. He had front row season tickets to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for three years. Every day for three years. But after this last meal, John 13, 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It was night. It's not just describing the time of day. It's describing the condition of an unrepentant heart, an unrepentant soul, a man who had sinned his way to the point of betraying his best friend. That's what sin does. But there was someone else that night who entered the darkness as well. And it was one who had no night in his soul. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that cross, it says in Mark 15, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What was the ninth plague before the exodus? Darkness in the land. What was the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn sons or the death of the lamb. And in this cross we have both. The death of the firstborn son, we have the death of the lamb so that people like us might be redeemed out of our Egypt. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Saul, Jesus bore the death of, of a prophesied death. He bore that curse of a prophesied death. And as he died, the words spoken by Saul were essentially spoken by Jesus. God has turned away from me, and he answers me no more. That's essentially what he's saying when he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why has God forsaken him? For sinners like us, who are so prone to Saul-like characters, Saul-like dispositions, natures, and behavior, seeking to use God rather than worship Him, being satisfied with partial obedience, which is the sin of divination. Naturally speaking, we are very much like Saul. We experience, to go back to William Blakely's language, the terrible effects of cherished sin that dries up our fountains of contrition where we don't have the capacity to have godly sorrow anymore because our fountain has dried up that stiffens our knees from their ability to bow them to the king that paralyzes our voices, disenabling our ability to cry out to God and blinds our eyes so that we can't see glory. We can't see true glory in God and in His Son. And Jesus, who had no night in His soul, He comes to our soul-like conditions as a better king, who not only never consulted a medium, he was the mediator between God and man. And as the mediator, he was crushed for our wickedness, our sin, our rebellion, our sin of divination. And then he is raised from the grave, walking out of that darkened tomb as the light of the world and his spirit comes 
as a gift to us from the sun, and he, he gives us the light of the sun. He gives us eyes. He enlightens our eyes to see and behold his glory for the first time. We now see him as beautiful for the first time. Our stiffened knees begin to bend for the first time. Bend to his kingship, his rule, his authority in every area of our life. And our fountain of contrition, which has been dried up our entire lives, now begins to overflow with godly sorrow. Our voices which were paralyzed, now are able to cry. You are Lord. You are glorious. You are exalted. And the question I would have, is that the pattern of your life? Is that the pattern of your life? And a good test for that is, would those who are closest to you be able to say that's the pattern of your life? And... In your closest human relationships, do you demonstrate that pattern? Fountain of contrition overflowing so that when your spouse does something you don't like, instead of being concerned with them, you get on your knees that were once stiffened by your sin and you bend them to King Jesus and you do business with him. More concerned with your sin than your spouse's sin. And if that's not the pattern of your life, it could be that you come to a place where God goes dark forever and ever in your life and existence. It's the questions we have to ask. Let's learn from Saul, but let's run to Christ. Let's pray.